Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Listening to the Red Seed Podcast. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood. Sale winds, he fires. Swing and a miss, Frank Lee, it's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. Today I am joined not only by Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood of Over the Monster, but we have a very special guest Jeff Ponce, who is a prospect writer at Baseball America, joining us for episode 282. Um, Jeff, welcome to the show. Second appearance on the show, first time in a while. What's new, my friend? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, different different side, of course, uh, than where I was previously. Um, now I get to do this as a full-time job. So just been, you know, working through our, our top 30 updates. Friday, the Red Sox list will go live. Um so Alex Berry does that one in the off season, and uh, I do it with the end season updates. I handle Baltimore, also do Toronto. We have ALEs coming out on Friday, so I got three teams there. I also handle the Braves, uh, the Cardinals, the Rockies, and the Astros. I have the uh, Cardinals, Rockies, and Astros in addition to the Blue Jays year round. So those are kind of my main teams. But I'm up here in New England. I see a lot of. Uh, Red Sox affiliates and players, and uh, I'm well-versed in the system. 
Yeah, that's a whole lot of stuff that you are responsible for at Baseball America. And I just want to urge any of our listeners that are interested in prospects to go ahead and follow Jeff on Twitter. He's Jeff Ponce, uh, B.A., uh, on Twitter. And, um, you know, also subscribing to BA is just a great idea. Um, I do it myself. Um, very much looking forward to the AL East list that you just talked about. Um, and by the way, I loved the article, uh, that you posted, um, in this latest issue of baseball America, the actual magazine on pitch types. That was super helpful to me. So, you know, J- Jeff's doing a lot of great stuff out there. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, that was that, those are fun to write. I, I like kind of diving into the data. Um, not that I am some super super advanced data mind, but you know I'm uh, I'm in scouting sections a lot all over the country. I'm around track mans in person at workouts and then at games, so I have a pretty good feel for pitch shapes and kind of connecting that to what you see when you're watching a, a game, whether in person or you know, on television and just the certain types of movement patterns and what makes it do that, et cetera. Um, and that was kind of like, we all picked up skills during the pandemic and my pandemic skill was learning how to read data printouts from TrackMan devices. <laughs> that's a pretty niche skill set, but certainly one that's going to help you uh, do your job. Um, you know, the, my goal by the end of the year is just to be able to identify the difference between a slider and a sweeper. So uh, hopefully your article will will help me do that. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. We've got a lot of questions to talk to you about this system. The very first one that we're going to ask you is on the ETA of Marcelo Mayer. Um, you know, just got a promotion up to Portland. Certainly extremely exciting for you know, all of us Red Sox prospect fans, he's the number one prospect in the system. Um, so, you know, what kind of things does he need to work on up there? And are there any comps that you can make to Marcelo Mayer at this point? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing is just show consistency at the plate. Um, you want to see some impact. He's done a good job of adding more impact to the bat over the last year. Um, the underlying exit velocity data, et cetera, is, is pretty good. Um, his contact and some of his swing decisions backed up a little bit, especially early on in the season, started to get a little hot. Um, so, you know, some of that can just be, you know, getting the rust off and some guys just are slow starters um, and just some sometimes it happens. So I wouldn't read too much into that, but I think the biggest thing is just having really good competitive at-bats cutting down on some of the swing and miss that we've seen this year, particularly against spin and hitting for impact. And, you know, if you look at tonight's game, he's, he's done that. He's had, you know, a couple of hits, um, you know, and, uh, and his first double a home run. So I think that's big. Uh, he's still very young for the level. Um, but it is good that they, uh, feel as if they can promote him aggressively. Um, I think there's probably maybe still some question as to what the true ceiling is here. Um, he's not the best athlete. As I mentioned before, there are a little bit more swing and miss concerns than the player that was sort of billed uh, as one of the best hit tools in the last few drafts. Um, and the approach could improve as well. But I think that that's it's at a level where it's not like panic inducing. You know, it's it's not even an orange, like let alone a red. It's more of a of a dark yellow. You know, it's it's kind of like fringy average in both uh, categories. So. 
you know, I think if he improves that and, you know, we do start to see that impact in games, then, you know, he can definitely be, you know, an everyday player, whether that's at shortstop, whether that's at third base, um, the reports in the, the shortstop defense have been pretty good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as comps, um, it's tricky because I, I tend to think of third baseman um, when I think about Mayer and just like the way he moves and et cetera in the field and just in general um, and the type of offensive profile he's kind of growing into. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the high end, like the absolute like 90th percentile outcome is probably like he's like a poor man's version of like Nolan Arenado or someone along those lines. Um, you know, for more more realistic comps as to sort of where he ends up. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a name, but just more of like your average like everyday you know, shortstop, third baseman, someone that can play a few different positions. Um, so kind of that like first division regular type guy. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, I think he could probably can probably get there. Um, but I think the realistic outcome is probably even a touchdown from, from there, you know? Wow. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> Over well, the last I mean, couple of years, it's kind of comparable to what like Carlos Correa has been, but that sounds a lot better than it probably is. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that this is the thing that, you know, most casual prospect fans of, uh, you know, that follow the Red Sox, when they see how high a guy like Marcel, Marcelo Mayer was drafted and they see kind of the expectations that goes along with that, I think they're thinking, hey, we drafted the next Xander Bogarts here, but it's it seems pretty clear that he's not quite that caliber of prospect. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it still could happen. Like, he's a, he's a top 10 prospect in the game. We have him eight on the updated list that we put out uh, this morning. Um, so, I mean, you know, the upside's certainly there. It's just tough with a range of outcomes that probably still exist. It's like, you know, is he, is he Josh Young? Um, you know, does he get to that Arenado sort of like level? Um, or is it more like Heimer Candelario, you know? Yeah. Who's still a nice player. Yeah. I mean, he's having an excellent season, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you think about comps, it's 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 tough um, because he doesn't have like some defining characteristic so much at this point that kind of makes him like, all right, he's he's a lot like this player, you know? Yeah. Well, before we close the book on Marcelo Mayer, I just want to touch on the defense part of things. You've mentioned a, a lot of third basemen here. Do you expect that he'll be able to stick at shortstop for at least some time? Or do you think that before he makes the major leagues, he's going to end up moving over to the hot corner? Based on um, based on the, the current evals that we've been getting back, I, I think he's his. He, it, there's a lot of hope for optimism there in terms of him sticking at shortstop. Long term, um, whether the body backs up and he moves off, like I said, he's not the most athletic guy, but he is a very skilled Shortstop just from, you know, actions, um, movement, internal clock, some of that sort of natural inherent stuff that you need to have as a shortstop that might even be more important than range and athleticism. He has a lot of that. So, you know, I do think that like you want to comp him to like a Xander Bogarts or someone like that at shortstop where he's a little bit bigger guy, 
not like a super freaky athlete, um, but plays the position well, I think that's probably a, a pretty reasonable um, way to look at his defense. Awesome. Do Tristan Cassis' struggles at the major leagues surprise you at all? Do you think he can make the improvements necessary to become an all-star caliber player? Yeah. Um, you know, it's still very early in his career. He's 23 years old. Um, you know, the underlying numbers aren't awful, awful. Um, he's walking. The strikeout rate is higher, but it's not at a completely alarming level. Um you know, he hits the ball hard. His averages are good. Um, you know, his launch angles are pretty consistent. He barrels up at a, a pretty fair rate. His hard hit rates are all pretty good. Um, and even his batted ball profile, like he's around a 20% line drive. He's above 40% in terms of fly balls. Um, you know, he doesn't like seem, he doesn't have a ground ball problem or anything along those lines. He's had a lot of bad luck on balls in play in the major leagues. Um, I always feel like Fenway Park for left-handed hitters, particularly guys that don't have <laughs> Ortiz level, like 70 grade, 80 grade power. That's a tough right field to hit the ball out of. Like people look at Pesky's pole and they look at the, at, at the measurement from home plate there. And they don't think about the fact that within about three feet, the wall jets out about 70 feet back and it's really 380 to like not even like deep left, you know, deep right field. Um, you know, I think that kills a lot of guys swings. I think we saw that with like Benintendi. I think like when he tried to become a home run hitter, like everything kind of fell apart for him. So, you know, I wonder how much of like those struggles are maybe not as much of an issue in a, in a different park, you know, um, because a lot of the underlying stuff is, is there. Um, you know, he gets on base, he hits the ball hard, he's hitting the ball in the air. Um, you know, are there probably like, like, I don't, I, you know, I can't look deeply and look at what his early connection numbers are and like how far in front of the ball he's getting. And like, I don't have his, his pull side launch angle in front of me. And like, maybe that's part of the problem um, that it's more center oppo. But even that, I mean, you look at like his batted ball profile, like he's, he's, heavily pull like center pull so there's like no questions there um i just think a lot of it's bad luck and a young player struggling and probably gets in his head a little bit um but there's nothing that's really out of like control here when you look at the contact his zone contact numbers his his o swing numbers are fine his swing strike rate is fine and like everything else i said before so and just watching him, uh, I mean, I, I tend to think he, he takes pretty competitive at bats. Um, there's just been some bad luck on balls in play, I, I think, frankly. I mean, he's running a, a two forty eight um, batting average on balls in play. So I think that's a heavy driver of a lot of it. Um, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if weather warms up here, it starts to get humid, ball starts to carry a little bit more, and all of a sudden, you know, Cassis goes on a run and gets hot in July or August. Yeah, so you actually kind of started to hit up my follow-up question there. I was going to ask, do you think it's mostly bad luck, or do you can you pinpoint something that you think he can work on? It sounds like you think it's just generally bad luck at this point. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, I'll be honest. Like the majority of my game viewing is is minor league baseball. Um, you know, whether that's in person, which is probably like 
50 or 60 percent of the time and then the nights that i'm home like just watching games and i am mlb tv that you know i'm not necessarily watching a ton of casts at bats i've been to a few games this year obviously watched a few Sox games but um there's been not been nothing that's like you know stuck out to me you know but uh i'm also not a professional hitting coach so there's only so far my eyes will take me Jeff, the uh, the pitching prospects that the Red Sox have developed successfully through the system have been kind of few and far between over pretty much two decades now. Um, one success story in getting to Boston is with Brian Bayo. Uh, he's been very good this season. He's only had one start where he allowed more than three earned runs. Uh, you know, I'd like to see him get his pitch count down a little bit, but kind of what is his ultimate ceiling uh, in your mind? Um, you know, I know... As you said, you haven't seen as much at the major league level this year, but um, I know you got your eyes on him in, in the minors. And, and what do you think his ceiling is? Yeah, and I saw one of his rehab starts uh, actually against Logan Allen of all people in <laughs> in Worcester. So I did. I have seen him live this year. Um, I saw him a bunch last year in Worcester and Portland. So I probably have had like eight or nine starts with Bayo over you know the course of the last few seasons and. You know, for me, I think it's just he's found success because, um, you know, he has three legitimate pitches. He has a secondary that he can use against left-handers and against right-handers. He struggled a little bit more against lefties this year. Um, I think that's just the nature of, you know, the type of changeup that he has. Like, sometimes it's going to come, it's going to go. But, you know, he, he misses bats. He drives ground balls at, at a really, you know, really high rate. I think it's like a 55 plus percent ground ball rate this year or something. Um, which, you know, I mean, from time to time, you're, you're going to end up with some bad luck on balls in play. And that'll happen to guys that, that do pitch to contact. And he will do that from time to time. Um, but, you know, when I look at the arsenal, um, it's, you know, a, a pretty good fastball. It's primarily a sinker. He'll throw the four seam, you know, um, I would say like, it's like two to one sinker to, to four seam. Um, it's a good changeup. It's got separation, you know, eight to 10 miles per hour off of the, uh, off of the fastball, regardless of what the shape is. Um, you know, it, it kind of models that same movement that he gets on the two seamer um, where it has like heavy arm side run. You know, he mixes in the slider. Uh, it's a pretty good pitch against right-handers, you know, and he can, he can you know, mix in two different fastballs and, he'll, and he will throw the changeup right on right from time to time. So, you know, it's a, it's a high-powered arsenal. It's one that technically has four different pitch shapes. He has feel for, you know, a, a duo of secondaries, which isn't common. Um, he can miss bats. He can get chase swings because of that changeup. He gets a lot of ground balls. Um, I, you know, I think you look at a guy like this at 24 and it's like, what's the ceiling? And I, you know, I think that this will sound disappointing to some people, but I think like this is a mid rotation starter, like through and through, you know, um, maybe he has years where he's a number two. I don't know about that. I think he'd have to be a little less contact oriented, you know, and start blowing guys away, which just with the shape of his fastballs, he's probably not going to do that. Um, so for me, like, you know, that's a 60, Like that's what a 60 is. A 60 is a mid rotation starter. So, you know, I think this guy is a, but an above average major league pitcher and probably will be in a pretty short window. And then it's just a matter of 
remaining healthy and remaining effective, um, you know, pitching is funky. Like <laughs> as we saw with Alec Manoa, like there's guys that have great seasons and then fall off the table. You know, Lucas Giolito has been, you know, better this year, but like he, he struggled for a few years after, you know, being a Cy Young type of guy. So um, right. it's tough to predict the future, but I do think that, you know, all signs here are that this is a true starting pitching prospect at the Red Sox developed and, you know, is now one of their better pitchers at the major league level. Well, before we move on to our next question, I just have to ask you to take out your crystal ball here for a second and uh, entertain this this throwback. Uh, Brian Bayo versus Clay Buckholtz. Who ends up having the better career? Ooh. Because um... that's kind of the last name I think about when I think about Red Sox pitching development, you know, going well. Yeah, Buckholtz or, or Lester, right? Right. Yeah, I'm just trying to like re- refresh myself here on Buckholtz. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a different game too. Like <clears throat> if you look at his like strikeout numbers, they're like so low in comparison to what guys have nowadays. You know, right? I I kind of feel like I I have more faith in in Bayo. Um, some of that is is hindsight is is 2020 here with with Buckholtz. Um. But I think just when you talk about character and makeup and work ethic and some of those things, I, I just think that um, I don't have those concerns with Bayo and that early in his career was often um, a stumbling block for Buckholz. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's move on to probably the biggest pop-up guy uh, in the Red Sox system from last year, Sedan Rafaela. Took huge strides um, offensively, defensively. Um, but one of the things that he's dealing with right now is he's continuing to struggle offensively at double a, um, a lot of swing decision issues, you know, not exactly taking good walks. Um, I guess my question here is, you know, with, with Sedan Rafaela, is this a guy who you want to try and sell high on because, you know, he, he's got major league level defense at this point. Or is this a player worth waiting on and seeing if he can continue to improve his plate discipline? And, you know, <laughs> I guess that you don't have to squint too hard to see a 60 player in there if if the hitting comes along. Yeah, um, Raphael is a tough one. I mean, he definitely likes to swing it. That's, that's for sure. Um, but the thing with him that's tricky is there is contact ability there. There's power at the point of contact. He's an excellent base runner, you know, and I think in this day and age with the current rules and environment, it's something he can take advantage of. Um, Yeah, he's never going to walk a lot. He's never going to walk a lot. He likes to swing. I don't know if his pitch selection is always great. Sometimes he does damage on pitches that you're like, I didn't think he'd hit that as far as he did. Um, And there's other times where like, he'll swing at stuff and you're just like, he shouldn't have swung at that. Um, but I mean, he keeps his strikeout rate in check because he has like a neat bat to ball skills. And I think this is where there's some nuance to the term hit tool. Like when I grade out hit tools, I'm looking at bat to ball ability. Right. And that's typically what we think of as the defining characteristic of the hit tool is like how well a guy puts the bat in the ball, how much he swings and misses. 
But a bigger component, and especially in this day and age, is the approach element of it, getting on base, working your walks, working deep into counts, making the pitcher work, right? There's all peripheral benefits we've learned over time and study to an offensive game plan with players that do that, right? Um, so he doesn't fit into that box, but he's a standout defender, probably a 70 in center field. He was pretty good in the infield too. Like he can play a few different positions. There's a Nate bat to ball skills there. He can run. There is power. He's going to struggle. And the funny thing is like once the weather turned up here, so we're looking back five series now. So the ninth of May, which is probably the best way to look at the numbers in terms of, you know, clean blocks. So that's a that's a 23 game sample. He's hitting 309, 352, 468 with a 13.3% K rate, a 6.7% walk rate. Um it's a 117 WRC plus. You know, he's got 17 steals and 20 opportunities, a lot of singles, six doubles, three home runs. Like you'll take that player. Um and it's funny, he's he's very much in the same style and I don't know if he's going to be this guy. Right, because this guy's an all-star and has had some great years, but it's not that different from what Tim Anderson is, right? Like Tim Anderson doesn't doesn't walk a lot. Tim Anderson hits for contact. His home run numbers aren't crazy. You know, he goes into prolonged slumps. Um, his slugging numbers are are pretty bad actually over the last couple of years. Um, but peak Tim Anderson would hit you seventeen to twenty home runs and. Steal 15 to 25 bags. I actually think Sedane Raphael is a better runner than he is. And his career walk rate is like, you know, 3.7% with a higher strikeout rate. But he gives you good defense at shortstop. It's not that different from Sedane Raphaela as a player, right? I mean, when you say it like that, I mean, this is a guy I'm, I'm holding on to then. Like, this is a guy I don't want any part of selling if if Sedan Raphaela even has a prayer of becoming you know, Tim Anderson type guy, except playing center field, because we know how valuable up the middle players are. And and good offensive center fielders are few and far between. There's a lot better offensive shortstops right now than there are offensive center fielders. Yeah. Outside of the elite, elite guys in the game, most of the best outfielders are right fielders, right? In terms of hitting. And then, you know, you look at a guy like Brandon Nemo, who like you probably wouldn't have been all that excited about. And I, and people weren't that excited about Nemo as a prospect. And now Nemo is like, you know, gets a huge contract because he has offensive production. He happens to be a different type of player than Sidney Raffaella. His offensive production and good enough defense in center field. And Fenway, value, it, the value of good defensive outfielders in Fenway is worth its weight in gold. Those are huge gaps. There's huge amounts of areas. There's weird cavern, you know, uh, that the ball bounces off of and caroms, etc. Like, it's... There's value in this player. I, I, I think that maybe he's not a top 100 guy, but there's a lot more than 100 prospects that are going to be good in the major leagues. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I think people kind of forget that. Like, everybody comes to the minors, um, unless you're, you know, coming over from Japan and you're 29 years old or something. Like, it's very rare that guys don't play in the minor leagues at all. So, yeah, I mean, I think with Raffaella, he's streaky. The type of hitter he is is going to be streaky. Um, but there's not zero power. He's an impact base runner. That's only gotten better as he's moved up. Um, 
And even the season line isn't terrible. It's in 284, 322, 411 entering today's play. So it's not bad. And I just, I don't know. I mean, like, you want to be negative about it and say that it's like a utility player? Fine. That's a pretty valuable utility guy, especially one that can play shortstop, third base, second base, all three outfield positions. <laughs> like, yeah. He can pretty much play anywhere you want except for catcher and pitcher. Like, you know, and he's got a great arm. I mean, that's the other thing, too, you know. Um, so he could handle right field in Fenway if they wanted to do the the Jackie Bradley thing when he was in, in right field for a little bit, like, because he had a good arm and, you know, was a good outfielder. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like for the Red Sox, this player has some value. They've been looking for good defensive outfielders for years. Um, he's a lot younger than what Jaron Duran was. And Duran is, to a degree, come out the other side of it. So, I yeah, for me, I think the Red Sox should hold on this guy. I think even the selling high thing, I don't think a lot of teams necessarily value this guy in trades as much. Um, but I do think that he's a guy that's close to the majors, um, he's on the 40 man roster, you know, so like they could potentially call him up. Right. Um, they don't have to make any sort of additional moves there. So yeah, I think this is a valuable guy for them to have deep into the season. And it wouldn't shock me if he continues to hit and stays hot. If he gets up to the major leagues at some point this summer, you know, it might take a little, a couple of years for it to settle in, but I don't know. I mean, He's shown enough contact at this point in power and speed that it's at least interesting. Well, one of the names you brought up there was Jackie Bradley Jr. And, um, you know, for our listeners' sake, many of them are familiar with the great defense of JBJ. How does his defense compare? Because I've heard some people talk about his defense as being sort of that level of special. Yeah, probably. He's one of the better defensive center fielders I've seen in the minor leagues the last three seasons. Um, and <laughs> and I, I go to probably like 100 games a year. I see a lot of games. Um, I see a lot of players. And, yeah, I mean, I uh, he just makes plays. He makes, you know, throws. Um, his routes are excellent. Even when he kind of like misreads a ball, he has the makeup speed to get over there, which is a big part of playing that particular position. Um you know, and he's he's aggressive. Like he tries to make plays on balls. You know, mm-hmm. so I think he's you know close to that level. It wouldn't shock me if he if his defense grades out similarly once you know we get the expected catch rates and all that sort of stuff to compare him against Jackie Bradley Jr. But um, it's up there. All right. Well, got me excited about him for sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. 
Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How, uh, if at all, does the injury to Miguel Blaze's shoulder change your outlook on what type of player he can be? And then ultimately, what kind of ceiling we're looking at here? Yeah, no, for me, um, an injury, particularly to a hitter, um, you know, I mean, if I found out that like it was nerve damage, something like that, totally different (laughs) situation. Um, But, you know, I think that something's plagued him this year. The exit velocity numbers haven't been as crazy as they had been in previous seasons. Um, You know, there's still contact here. I don't think the approach is as bad as like some people may make it out to be. Um, the swing decisions have actually been okay this year and he's really young. Um, hasn't been the best season stinks that he's been hurt. Um, but I, I think the upside is still there for this guy to be, you know, a potential above average everyday outfielder. You know, I, I don't think that it's, I don't think he's a Cunha. I know some people were trying to throw that sort of stuff out there early, (laughs) I mean, I think I think this could be a 60 player. This could be one of the more exciting players they've had in the international market in quite some time. Um, yeah, I'm 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 still in. I'm, I'm Miguel Blaze. I'm I'm not moving off of it. Um, the feedback I've got from scouts that have seen him this year, I haven't seen that affiliate. They've all been good. Folks that saw him last year in the complex loved him. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's 19. He's young. You know, full season isn't great, you know, isn't easy for everybody. And a majority of this year so far has been pretty cold. And we have to think about a lot of these these Latin guys having to adjust to that. Seemed like some of that, uh, those comparisons with like Acuna were the exit velocity numbers that, you know, not everyone has access to. But it seemed like uh, for a player his age, that comps were getting a little bit crazy um, just because he seemed like he almost had MLB level exit velos. Um in some reports. Yeah. And he was a good athlete. I mean, like, yeah, his, his 90th percentile, I can tell you last year was above 105. It's about a hundred miles per hour this year. So it's down five miles per hour. There's obviously something going on there. Um, but he's a great athlete. You know, he plays a great center field. Like he's just a, you know, he's, he's an all around tooled up prospect and the Red Sox haven't had a lot of those guys. It's really been a lot of skill based sort of players. Right. Um, so moving on to Shane Drowen, who has been kind of the big breakout this year in the on the pitching side in the Red Sox system. Uh, you know, he a few weeks ago he was the Eastern League pitcher of the week where he had eleven scoreless innings and then he was bumped up to triple A and you know, get hit hard a couple of times, but he's been better in recent outings. Can you talk about um, you know, if you've seen any changes and what's made the difference for him? Um, you know, and just kind of Sailing wise, do you think that he could be the top pitcher in the organization at this point? Um, you know, someone that that could be a rotation, you know, back of the rotation type guy. Does he have that ceiling, or you know, is it more just kind of what he did at Double A? We need to see that at Triple A before you can can confirm that. Um. Yeah. No, I think he's a back end of the rotation arm. Uh, I saw. I was at his last Double A start in Portland. Um. Yeah, it's fine. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing there to get tremendously excited about, but I think he could be a number sure, four, sure. number five starter. He's a lefty that, you know, has some velocity. I mean, he's sitting like two to three this year, touching four or five on his four-seam fastball. Um, you know, it's 
not crazy shape or anything like that, but he commands it fairly well. Um, he's got a good change up. He plays that off of it. Um, you know, he added the cutter this year, um, which has been a nice sort of like in between pitch for him. It's a little bit harder, uh, more of a true cutter, you know, than a, than a, like a hard slider or something like that. Um, and you know, he'll mix in the sinker here and there. Um, but really it's four seam fastballs. He'll, th- he'll throw a curveball. He's got a high spin curveball that he'll throw as well. That kind of has two plane movement, uh, in the mid seventies. So he's got good sort of separation between all, all four of his main offerings now, especially with that cutter added. That's a little bit harder. Um, it keeps guys off the four seam and it works. And, you know, I, I, I don't think you know, look, we're not, we're not talking about a guy that's ever going to, you know, spearhead a rotation. He's never going to be your number two starter. You know, I think the high end of the high end is like, <laughs> uh, you know, a number three, like a low end number three, but right. we're probably talking about, you know, a four or five starter that goes out there, takes the ball every five days and, you know, gives you, you know, five, five innings of two or three run ball and, you know, can be pretty consistent, um, you know, strike, strike, strike some guys out, but it's not going to be crazy strikeout numbers, but enough that, you know, you're not terribly concerned. Um, but he's never going to be like a top 30 starter or anything sort of along those lines. But I think there's some, I think there's some value to guys like that. And, um, you know, maybe there's still even a little bit more upside, Pitching is funny. He throws enough strikes that, you know, maybe he just executes at a high level after a few years in the major leagues, you know. Um, But I think he's another starting pitcher. They developed, they drafted, they developed. Um, He's certainly gotten better under their tutelage year over year. He continues to get better. He's a, you know, he's a hell of a competitor. Um, So I think there's a lot of positives there, but I just think, you know, we shouldn't get too crazy about it. Um, It wouldn't shock me if he's up at some point this summer. I think he's their best pitcher in the, in the system right now. Well, with, with drawing one of the traits that he had when they drafted him in, in 2020 uh, out of Florida state was that he was a good athlete. You know, he, he was one of these guys that seemed to be a little bit more projectable. And when you looked at his numbers on the surface, especially, you know, coming from college, it wasn't all that impressive. He didn't, you know, stand out, um, but they saw that athleticism um, and they drafted him and they've developed him. And obviously it's a success story for for the team. But in that same draft, they drafted Blaze Jordan in the third round, 89th overall. Nick York, 17th overall in the first round. You know, two guys who are just very heavily reliant on their ability to hit in order to really impact the game. You know, Nick York is having a resurgent year this year. He's hitting really, really well. But can you talk a little bit more about that philosophy that the Red Sox seem to have? They seem to be a little bit more willing to bet on guys that maybe need one or more, you know, uh, carrying tools to kind of uh, get them to the major leagues rather than drafting guys who are just more pure athletes who maybe have a little bit more of a path to impact the game? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, 
I feel like the Red Sox draft a lot of skill guys, like lower ceiling, high floor types, and they'll take their shots here and there on the upside guys. Um, but they're not like a crazy upside, you know, chasing team like the Dodgers or the Rays or something like that. Um, but, you know, they've shown a willingness, at least in last year's draft, to to go after a little bit more projectable player like, a Roman Anthony, a Cutter Coffee is kind of along those lines. Um, and, you know, I think getting better athletes into the system is a recipe for success. I mean, those are the guys that more easily typically are able to make adjustments, et cetera, whether that's the swings, learning new positions, um, they age better, et cetera, um, than sort of lower athleticism, high skill kind of guys. But they've still taken a couple of those guys in the first round, like a Mikey Ramirez or a Nick York, um, you know, where they're higher skill guys. And then the issue there is, you know, if they don't hit, if they don't produce, if something sort of goes wrong and there's a tweak, the level of athleticism they have backs up, then, you know, you're, you're looking at players that sometimes sort of lose a little bit of shine and, you know, fall down the sort of role spectrum. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I've noticed. And I, I agree with you that last year's draft seemed to break from the uh, the pattern of the last two drafts before that, 2021 and 2020. Um, it, it seems like they are a little bit more willing to take risks on the more athletic guys later in the draft and that they bet on the skill guys a little bit more early. Is there anything to that, or is that just something that we've seen come up in the last couple of drafts, and really not something that we should, you know, read into too much? Um, no, I think it's their style of drafting. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it. Um, I think you pass on a lot of good players, sort of following that process, and you know, we can look at the Nick York pick, and I guess the question is, how much money did they have? Um, in that draft to be able to sign P. Crow Armstrong, but he was sitting right there. They could have drafted him. Uh, the year after, they went after Judd Fabian, having like not talked to him and negotiated it all. <laughs> it's an interesting strategy. And the number, um, the number didn't match up, and he went unsigned and went back into the, the draft. There's some rumors that he would have gone to the Orioles with the next pick. They took Connor Norby. But James Wood was sitting right there. And I feel like if you're going to gamble on that profile, you should have gambled on James Wood. Um, you know, there were probably reasons why they didn't, uh, but they didn't. And yeah, you know, so I, they've had some some sort of miscues. Um, but then they got a guy like Chase Medroff that kind of falls into that spectrum. Though he was very cheap, um, was a money saver in the fourth round. Um, he's turned out to be a pretty good player, so... I guess that's kind of the inverse of it. But, you know, I, I tend to be more of the mindset of bet on the athletes, bet on the upside, go after the guys that, you know, have the tools that can turn into impact major league regulars. So in Bloom's tenure, you know, going back to 2020, 2021, you know, all the, these past few drafts, um, what picks have you liked and, and what kind of picks have you, you know, thought, wow, the Red Sox could have really picked somebody who would have been a better fit for their their team at that point. I know you already mentioned PCA, but you know, I think PCA and then that, that Fabian pick. Um, and I think there were better options than Mikey Ramiro. Um, <laughs> we go back and, you know, we take a, we take a look at 
that that 2022 draft um it's not like Dalton rushing was a secret um there were multiple teams in the first round I spoke with that viewed him as a potential first rounder you know and he ends up dropping <laughs> to pick 40 to the Dodgers um you know they had an opportunity to draft that guy that's a player that I would have gone with um you know over Mikey Ramiro I think it's a different type of player. They already have this and cast this a little bit. I think Xavier Isaac was interesting. I thought Drew Gilbert was a perfect fit for what they were looking for. And he was a guy that balanced skills and some athleticism and et cetera right there. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody would, would tell you that they wouldn't rather have Spencer Jones right now than Mikey Romero. Um, you know, he went the pick after the Yankees, uh, which kind of stinks a little bit. And there's certainly some some warts with Jones's game. He swings and misses. He doesn't walk a ton, but the power and the upside, the athleticism is something that you can certainly dream on. And, you know, that's uh that's the reason that, you know, they've spent as much money as they have this offseason in terms of bringing in PD people is to develop guys like that. So, yeah, for me, I think there's a few players that you can kind of look at and say, what if, um, but you know, I don't know what the negotiation process was for them. I don't know who they were on. And, um, you know, I don't want to say that they didn't try because they could have, and the draft is, is funky like that. You know, do they have an addiction to Southern California middle infielders that they need to shake? It would seem that that's the case. Yes. (laughs) I don't think there's any this year they can draft. So, Okay, good. We'll we'll have to go a different direction finally. Um, all right, let's move on to the pitching side of things. Keaton's got one for you now. Yeah, uh, Luis Perales at low A. Stat line hasn't been great on the year, especially with the rock walk rate being particularly unsightly. Uh, but some of the scouting reports on him have been pretty impressive. Uh, and this was someone who sat 91 to 93, even touching 95 as a 16-year-old. And B.A. put his fastball at a 65 and his curve at a 60. If he can harness his control, get that in check a little bit, do you think he may have the highest ceiling in the organization? Oh, he definitely. Of the pitching prospects, he easily has the highest ceiling. Even with the control issues, or do you think he still has to work on that? Well, I mean, we're talking about ceiling. He would get his, yeah, exactly. He would have his control. So, um yeah, I mean, this is a guy that averages like 20 inches of induced vertical break, sitting 94 to 96, touching 98, 99 miles per hour. It's it's like 70 fastball metrics. Um, now, it's just a matter of him getting it in the zone more and th- throwing enough strikes for him to be effective. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of his strike throwing issues really come in the secondaries, um, particularly his slider, which... Grades out okay. It's a slightly above average pitch. It's kind of the same with his changeup, but he's primarily fastball um, slider. And that slider has below a 50% strike rate. It's kind of a tighter cutter type of hybrid slider, um, which is natural when you see something that sits 86, 87 miles an hour. Uh, There's typically a fair amount of cut there. Um, And, you know, we talk about different types of profiles kind of getting the weeds here with pitchers there's 
you know, supinators and there's pronation dominant pitchers. He's a pronation dominant pitcher, which means he has an efficient four seam fastball and then breaking balls that don't have a ton of spin on them. Um, so guys that are pronation profiles like this, like Garrett Cole's pronation profile, but he's kind of an outlier. Um, Jacob DeGrom is a pronation profile. These guys all have these like high ride, hard, you know, super high spin efficiency four seamers. And there's like supinators, guys that spin the ball really well, that have high spin rates. Brian Bayo is a supinator, um, higher spin rate in the breaking ball, throws like a really low efficiency fastball, which is why there's a lot of two seamers and not just this four seamer. So some of that is like inherent and natural, right? And Perales has these traits that few guys have. Now, I get a lot of bullpen, like long-term rolls on him. And I think it's because of the strike throwing. That said, Prowse is super young. Um, he's at a full season level. What was he? He's 20 years old. Um, he has crazy stuff and he's out there competing. So, you know, I, I do think that there's some cause for optimism here. He's the kind of pitcher that you bet on when you bet on guys finding command. Um, it's just it's just tough to to know for sure if that's ever going to come. It doesn't for some guys and they end up in the pen and other guys, it seems like it doesn't come and then they end up in the major league somehow and they pitch really well. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, command. I'm the wrong guy to talk to about that because I tend to gravitate towards stuff, you know, and then let's see when he's 23, 24 years old, how he executes as he moves up. Um, cause it could take a little tweak and then all of a sudden this guy's, you know, not walking the house all the time, throwing strikes consistently. Maybe it's changing his breaking ball to something different. And all of a sudden these, those guys can take off. So, yeah, I mean, I think he has the highest upside maybe of any player in the Red Sox system, probably even like Marcelo Mayer included, because this is a guy that if it all clicks, I think you could be talking about somebody that, ends up, you know, front of the rotation up, you know, type of starter. I think the chances of him getting to that role are incredibly slim though. And that's kind of what the issue is. Love to dream though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff, a couple of, of other uh, pitchers who, you know, are going to be further down the, the prospect list, but uh, CJ Lou and Isaac coffee. Um, Lou, it, Double A threw a seven inning no hitter back in April. I think he had eleven or twelve straight no hit innings there. Kind of had some ups and downs since, but um, you know his fastball at times has been really impressive uh, since he came over to the states. And then with Isaac Coffey, he's kind of on the opposite end, strike thrower, barely touches ninety. But you know, watching some film from him this year, he's mixed his pitches well. He has thirty strikeouts in his last three starts over eighteen innings. And I'm not sure he's given up more than, uh, you know, a run in those three starts total. So anything with either pitcher that you think could potentially play at the higher levels, I know that, you know, there might not be as much upside with them, but uh, anything that you've seen different? Yeah, I saw Lou when I was up in Portland. And, I mean, he's fine. He does, that's a guy, he does not throw a lot of strikes. Um, one of the reasons, there were scouts in that section that were joking around saying the reason he hasn't a lot of hit over that period was because he doesn't throw enough strikes for anyone to actually hit it. Um, 
he's got stuff. It's just it's funky. Um, he throws his fastball less than he throws his slider. He's predominantly slider. So he's slider first. It's like an 84 mile per hour kind of like mini sweeper. Um, fairly flat, not a lot of depth. Gets, you know, we'll say like 8 to 10 inches, 11 inches of horizontal break or sweep on it. He can land that pitch. Um, the fastball is okay. Um, I think he's somebody that could probably use some improvement on the shape a little bit. And I think that it's maybe within the realm of possibility that he could add efficiency. He throws hard. He sits 94 to 97. But when I saw him, he, he very much looked to me like a like a reliever, um, like a sixth inning kind of reliever, right, uh, right. which is fine. And like if you end up with that guy in that role and he's a major leaguer, I, I think you're probably pretty happy. Um, but he's pre- predominantly a slider fastball guy and a slider first, and he'll mix in a change up and a cur- off, you know, uh, the cuff sort of curveball every so often. And then as far as coffee, coffee's more interesting to me, and I've been I've been trying to figure him out for a few weeks now. Um, I'm hoping that he gets promoted up the chain so I could potentially see him in Portland because I'm probably not going to see Greenville anytime soon. Right. Um, right. But it's a it, it's it's a low 90s, uh, high 80s sinker. But it's really strange because his stuff grade is actually like average or above, and part part of that is the fact that it, he does have some some sink on it. He's got a ton of arm side run. I mean, he's averaging like 19 to 21 inches of arm side run. So on a two-seam fastball, that is a very important characteristic. Um, he will throw a four-seamer, but doesn't really need to. Like, he kind of mixes and matches. Um, but I think it's really a, a two-seam sinker. And what's unusual about it is he's a low-release height guy, so it's a it's a flatter vertical approach angle on a sinker, which is really weird. So it's like this outlier release characteristics and arm side run and movement that it plays way above the velocity. If he was able to add two ticks onto this and he, we're talking 91 to 93, you know, um, with that shape, he doesn't lose any shape. That's pretty dangerous. I mean, it's probably a better sinker than like, you know, Brandon Walter was a pretty good one. Um, and you know, he's got a changeup that has very little vertical ride on it, almost none, um, with a ton of arm side run. He's getting like 22, 23 inches of run on that. You know, it's kind of tunneling off of that off of that two-seam sinker that he's throwing. Um, and, you know, there's actually like a fair amount of separation, like from a vertical movement standpoint. And then he mixes in a slider that's kind of like a cutter, um, and it's funny cause his secondaries don't really have like terrible velocity. Um, I think for the style of pitch that his slider is, it probably has like below average velocity, but it's like an 80, 81 mile per hour slider. Um, change up is like low eighties as well. And then he mixes in a curveball. It's kind of an interesting pitch mix and he mixes his second, like he mixes his change up in his slider and you know the fastball pretty regularly um that it's interesting i mean i don't want to write the guy off but at this point you know he's a little bit older 
kind of beaten up on younger competition. Um, but at the same time, like he, he has this really unique pitch mix, you know, that allows him to obviously miss bats. He throws a ton of strikes. Um, and he's kind of like the weird sinker ball guy that gets like strikeouts versus ground balls. So, well, it's funny you mentioned Walter because I, my mind went there just with, you know, he's got 12 and a half strikeouts per nine and one and a half walks per nine. And that's kind of what Walter did, you know, from the other side, throwing from the left coffee being a righty, but that's kind of where my mind went with just a later round pick who isn't throwing that hard and getting a ton of strikeouts. Yeah, I mean he's he certainly has produced and he's become one of the more interesting players in the in the system, you know. Yeah, yeah. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Moving on to um, a couple of the guys who are at the higher levels, um, and, and Brandon Walter being one of these guys, Brian Mata, Brandon Walter, and Chris Murphy, they've all had their struggles this year, and I think each one of these guys presents a, a bit of an interesting case you know, Brian Mata, he's got to be added to the major league roster at the end of the year. So I think the team has to probably think about whether or not he's a starter or a reliever and make that decision. Um, Brennan Walter, you know, struggled mightily compared to what he was doing last year, especially before um, the neck slash back injury. And then Chris Murphy, who actually just got the call up to the Red Sox to presumably pitch his lefty out of the bullpen. Um, he's struggled as a starter too. So can you talk about what you've seen from those three guys and, um, you know, what maybe has gone wrong in each of their development, if anything, that, you know, has prevented them from looking like the starters that, you know, some people thought they could develop into? Yeah. Um, you know, I think Walter's just health. (laughs) I think the biggest thing with Walter is health. He just hasn't had health, um, and that's really been his big struggle. Um, the stuff is there. I think he could get outs in the major leagues when he's healthy. It's just a matter of him being healthy and fully effective because of that health. Brian Mata has struggled with a variety of things. Um, health, I think, you know, if you read Alex Spira's article a few weeks ago, there's some questions about work ethic with him and how much he wants it. And I think for that reason, he's never been somebody whose game plans kind of just goes, goes out and throws There's stuff there, but it's never kind of had like taking congruent shape of something that resembles either a starter or a good reliever. Um, and I think that he's just tumbling 
down the system. You know, I don't know um, what they could have done differently with with Mata. Um, if it's the kind of thing where he's just not interested in putting in the work and he's not physically able to. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, that's a tough one. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where like, is it a lead? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink kind of a situation because if that's the case, there's not much the organization could have done. Um, Murphy, I love Murph, man. He's a great guy. Um, really easy to root for. He's put in so much work. I don't know if you know his background at all, but he was a guy that was going to throw zone out in California. Um, and I'm going to mention this person's name, but this is no way an endorsement of this person. Which is where Trevor Bauer really learned to hone his craft was throw zone. Chris had a relationship. Um, he'll tell you it's a strictly baseball relationship. Um, with Bauer from the time he was 10 years old, they trained together at throw zone. Bauer was at UCLA. So he's very analytically inclined. He's put in a lot of work to become the player that he has. He's really gotten everything out of his body, uh, stuff wise and, and, and who he can be. I think the unfortunate thing for Murphy is I wonder if he sort of tapped out, that there was no more, projection remaining beyond this um he's an interesting player i think he probably fits in fine as a reliever long term or multi-inning guy potentially um you know spot starter here and there that can give you four or something um bulk guy whatever you want to call it um but i just kind of think that's what the upside is you know um he's had fits of bad command at certain points in his career uh, i don't know if the pitch mix and the you know shelving the slider and you know throwing the curveball and change up more is the organization telling him to do that or what um but you know we got to see um but i do think that i can't really blame the organization any of these three i just think that talent wise they've gotten as much as they possibly could have dreamed out of with walter and i think murphy has been a bit of a success story as well and you know they didn't they didn't draft either of those guys Murphy has to be looking over at Brian Mata and the the raw talent. I mean, that guy just comes back from Tommy John and he's throwing a hundred like immediately. <laughs> With the amount of work that Chris Murphy puts in, he has to be looking at that guy and being like, "Man, wish we could just trade places for a second. What kind of pitcher would they be?" Yeah, um, I'm sure you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, and like I said, I don't know Brian Mata personally. He's probably a great guy. I, I'm not sure, but. It's just, you know, in terms of what we've gotten for feedback, the things that we've heard, he's somebody that's taken a pretty um, steep nosedive to the back end of our, our top 30, frankly. Can you give us a little uh, a teaser of where all of these pitchers might rank in relation to each other on your list? Drohan, Perales, Lou, Coffey, Mata, Walter, Murphy. You know, how, how do these guys compare at this point? I know it's kind of difficult to compare guys that are in double A AA or triple A to guys who are in the lower levels. Um, so I have Drohan and Murphy inside the top 10. They're back to back. Both of them could be major league starters. Now I think in this organization, there's some value to that. And we're not talking about anybody that's really blowing the, you know, cover off the ball. Um, the two guys that I think probably should be in this conversation as well 
um, are Wilkman, Gar uh, Wilkman Gar Gonzalez and uh, Luis Rodriguez Cruz, um, two guys that, um, you know, I think are probably as good as any name that we've mentioned so far. Um, you know, I would have Rodriguez Cruz as well as uh, Gonzalez above both of them uh, or all of them, frankly. Um, excuse me, I said Louie. I, I meant to say Elmer Rodriguez Cruz. Um, Elmer, Louie, it's all the same. Um, but, you know, Rodriguez Cruz can pitch. I think that's the big thing is, like, he executes. The shapes aren't bad. Um, you know, he doesn't have a ton of velocity, but I do think that he's somebody that could potentially add some. Um, you know, you look at Wickelman, and, you know, the guy has been really good this season another guy that consistently goes out there and and gets outs and has enough projection that you know you could see him in like a drill hand type of like back end sort of profile or whatever you know um as he moves up the chain so yeah i mean i think that there's other guys in the system that i would even consider above um you know, coffee and Lou, um, in particular. And then, you know, I have Perales at 10. Uh, so he's still inside the top 10. Um, he's fine. Like I, we talked about the stuff. We talked about the upside. Um, if he doesn't get it together at some point, like by mid next year, he probably drops pretty hard. All right. And then Lou awesome. for me isn't a top 30 guy. Okay, cool. Uh, well, the Red Sox are going to have an opportunity here to add a pretty good player uh, to their system. They have the 14th overall pick in the upcoming draft, and I know that you know draft coverage is one of the the highlights of what Baseball America does. I always look forward to seeing all of the work that you guys put in on that, and it's just an invaluable resource. So, I wanted to ask you: at the 14th overall pick, are there any names that you're uh, looking forward to the Red Sox potentially having an opportunity to pick. Have there been any names connected to the team already? They also have the 50th and 83rd pick. So, um, you know, can you kind of preview that draft for us and, and uh, tell us any potential names who might be available at those three spots? Yeah. Um, you know, I think with the first round pick, it's going to be, you know, who's there. There's a good group at the top. Um, this is a really talented draft. There's a ton of college hitters. Um, you know, there's interesting prep players in that range as well. Um, you know, there's a prep pitcher that I, you know, I know they had some heat out at Thomas White's um, final high school start. I was there. He's a local Massachusetts guy at Phillips Ando, uh, Academy in Andover. Uh, big projectable left-hander. He's really interesting. There's actually another New England prospect. Uh, Matt Shaw of Maryland, he was the MVP of the Cape League last year. Um, bat first, middle infielder. Plays shortstop now. I think he probably ends up at second base long term. Um, but there's fields that hit, there's approach, um, there's power, there's speed. Um, like I said, he's a local kid as well. So that's kind of interesting. Kind of dream pick for me um, would be like a Tommy Troy from St Stanford. Second baseman, kind of similar to Shaw. Um, power, fields that hit. Good approach, um, pretty good athlete. Not a great defender, you know, but he's he's solid at second base. Um, there might be other guys like Braden Taylor available there, third baseman from Texas Christian, who's um, 
one of the more advanced hit tools in the college class, Enrique Bradfield, who's an outfielder. They want to go the college pitcher route. You have guys like Hurston Waldrip from Florida, who hasn't had the best year, but I do think that with any Florida uh, starter, there's always the chance that they get better once they leave Florida because Florida is very old school in terms of their pitch calling. They don't call a lot of secondaries. Waldrip is a guy that should throw less fastballs and more secondaries, so there's some low-hanging fruit there. Um, Chase Davis, I think, is a little bit of a sleeper. Really athletic outfielder from Arizona. Power, um, speed, approach combo. Um, the contact's been better this year. Um, really exciting player, Arunj Namala. Uh, high school player out of Florida. Um, shortstop that is pretty talented, kind of raw. Um, kind of not their style, but maybe something that's interesting. Something that fits their style is Northeast prospect out of Pennsylvania high school kid, Kevin McGonigal, uh, shortstop. Um, McGonigal kind of is right up their alley in terms of the type of players that they go after. Um, he's not from California, but they can pretend that Pennsylvania is California, I guess. And uh, he's kind of a high skill guy. Projects best as a second baseman, but um, high level hit tool and really talented. Um, and then we start to go back into like, you know, their second round pick. Um, I think this is where there's, you know, potentially some interesting college players, some guys, maybe like Will Saunders, um, from South Carolina or Tanner Witt from Texas, two pitchers that have a lot of pedigree and upside at certain points in the draft process were ranked pretty highly dealt with, you know, being ineffective for Sanders. And then Witt was coming back off of, um, injury. Bryce Matthews, a really talented infielder. Probably ends up at second base, but really toolsy, really athletic um, from Nebraska. Bryce Matthews, I think, is an interesting one. Then uh, Jackson Bowmeister is a right-hander from Florida State. Um, was great in the Cape last year, really good shapes. I think he's a guy that's maybe better in pro ball than he even was in college. Um, so I think those are some interesting names there. Then we start to get down into, like, you know, pick 80. You know, would they go after a guy like Teddy McGraw coming off of um, Tommy John surgery? Really high-end stuff uh, when he was at Wake Forest. He's a sinker slider guy, and it's nasty, like, you know, legitimate nasty stuff. They seem to like these sinker types, so maybe he fits. Grant Taylor is another guy from uh, LSU who was injured. He was great in the Cape last summer, uh, has a deep repertoire of pitches, good stuff. If he gets all the way back, he's a really interesting one. Uh, in my opinion, you know, somebody that I would go after. Another one, and it's the last one I'll throw out there, is Ryan Lasko of Rutgers, an outfielder that we kind of expect to be around there. Um, really talented all-around player, a standout defender in the outfield. And I think there's projectable offensive upside there as well. So all players that I think they could be interested in, um, you know, maybe Travis Honeyman from BC is probably another one. So, you know, it's it's a it's a mixed bag. We got to see, you know, what happens, where the bonuses shake out, who's available, where. I can't tell you at this point that I know with any certainty who they're on. I can tell you that I know that they did have people out to see Thomas White, and I know they're on McGonagall. All right, that's interesting stuff. When you said Rutgers, there, I, I know that probably piqued Bill Belichick's interest. So, you know, that that might get him going. Are, are we going to see the top two picks in this draft come from LSU in, in Cruz and Skeens? Oof. Um, yeah, I think so. Wyatt Langford's another one, man. Like, he's right there in that conversation. He's a great prospect. So there's three major dudes at the top and then two pretty good prep players. Um, 
and Max Clark and, and Walker Jenkins. Has that ever happened before where two guys from the same team have gone one, two? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, cause I believe Bauer went three and Garrett Cole went one and they were in the same rotation at UCLA. Um, but I would have to, I'd have to very quickly check that, uh, MLB draft and, <laughs> and yeah. see that was 2011. So here. Um, Bauer went three, Danny Holson went two, Garrett Cole went one. Oh, Danny Holson, RIP that shoulder. Yeah, could have been. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, th- these two players at the top of the draft, Skeens and Cruz, though, they seem like pretty transformative type players. Are are these sort of the best names that we've seen at the top of the draft in a while? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I think the top of this draft is loaded. I think we're going to look back and see that we had, you know, a few potential uh, stars from day one right here, and they could move. They could all move pretty fast too in the minors. The uh, just to go another direction with the draft before we finish up this topic. Is there anything that that you think, Jeff, that they could do to make it more of an event like the uh, NFL or the NBA? I, I know for me, kind of the when it, when the All Star break hits after watching so much baseball it's good was good to have three or four days off and now i feel and i'm sure even more so covering the draft that you're just right back out there during the all-star break and sunday and monday when the when the draft happens in those days i thought it was kind of good to get a few days off so um i feel like they should should go back to the way that it used to be um that's kind of part of what has bugged me a little bit but but is there anything the draft itself that you think could be more of an event or is it the nature of the player development in MLB that just takes so much time and you go three, four, five years before seeing those players where, um, you know, they're on your TV in game one and the other sports? Yeah, I think you touched on it, right, um, to a degree. Like, it's not like the NFL, NBA, you're going to plug and play those guys immediately. Those are the two drafts that get the biggest following. Um, their initial plan prior to COVID was to have the draft in Omaha at the college world series. So that was the original plan. They switched it up. Now it's right. part of all-star weekend. Um, I was there in LA. I'll be there this year in Seattle. It's my first draft that I attended. Um, it was cool. I mean, it was, it was more of an event than you probably realize. <laughs> um, you know, they had fans. I'm not sure if they paid those people when they were actors or not, but they seem to have fans. <laughs> and it was uh, it was interesting. It's a lot of fun. You know, I just think it's the nature of it. I think baseball is also the only sport where you don't have a job day one. Like, you have to earn it. Like, there's first-round picks that don't make MLB, right? And that doesn't happen in football and basketball. All those guys always get an opportunity to play in the league and then fizzle out. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that's a big part of it and why people aren't so excited as for like the time that's all go for me. Cause we, we vote on the futures game. I actually have the futures game ballots to look over once we, I get off here. Um, so we vote on the players that go to the futures game. We have an event the day before the futures game where we do interviews and we have like a call it the prospect pad. And it's, it's a little area, um, you know, in the convention center where the prospects as they show up for the future game come in 
We have like, you know, um, sponsors there, like glove companies, etc. A lot of these guys are sponsored by those guys, so they get free stuff. Um, and, you know, it's an opportunity for us to sit down with them, talk to them, chat a little bit, you know, off, you know, off camera too, and get to know some of these players. I got to know Andrew Abbott really well last year. Um, he's got a lovely family, really funny parents. And he hung out for about an hour. Uh, it was him and his mom and dad. Um, and like, you know, his dad was, uh, they're from Boston, Virginia. So his dad knew that I was from Massachusetts and was like, Hey, I'm from Boston too. And I started laughing. He's like, Boston, Virginia. And, uh, it was just kind of like, like, you know, and like Abbott was very relatable, like had like self-deprecating, like sense of humor. Um, isn't the biggest guy. He's probably five ten in person, like 195 pounds, you know, and not like the most athletic build. Um, but like you have like these genuine moments with players and that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then the draft was, was a lot of fun and being able to be involved in that, you know, Carlos Colazzo's on the broadcast. So being able to chat with Carlos ahead of time and then go out to dinner with him after with the whole team, um, was really cool. And, you know, I'm blessed to be able to do this. Uh, so I, I don't know if I have the best perspective on it. Um, and I don't know if there's a better time for them to do it. I think most front offices would tell you they preferred the June draft um, and being able to pick players then, get them into full season or shut them down. And the big thing for area scouts, the folks that are out there going to amateur games and scouting these players is there is a crossover of about three weeks with this new draft cycle where they're out seeing the next draft cycle and finishing up meetings for this draft cycle um they probably have gotten a little bit better at that but i think that from a logistics standpoint has been the biggest hurdle with the july draft versus the june sure now before we let you go i want to ask you to do something dangerous and if it were possible to estimate the value of the greatest hitter in the history of AAA baseball, what would be the trade value of Bobby Dalbuck right now? Um, I'm going to guess uh, you could probably get a player to be named later for him. That's about what I expected, yeah. That's encouraging. <laughs> Exciting stuff right there. We just wanted a lefty middle reliever or something last week, but apparently we were we were dreaming. So we could probably get Franchi Cordero back? Yeah, you probably could. You probably could. <laughs> He's he's got shortstop experience, guys. <laughs> Great. Well, I think uh, Bobby Dahlbeck's trade value is is about the best way we could have possibly ended this show. So, thank you for that, Jeff. Um, we we really do appreciate you coming on here and, and giving us all these insights. It's really great to talk to somebody who does this full time for a job and. Um, you know, all the stuff that you were just talking about, about, you know, getting to know these prospects and going to all these games. It's, it's, it's quite literally living the dream for, for guys like us. So, you know, thank you for sharing all of these insights and thank you for coming on and giving us all, all of this, this great information. I appreciate it, man. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, everybody go ahead and follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Ponce. 
uh, BA and follow Keaton at the Spoken Keats. Follow Bob at Bob Osgood15. Follow me at Dev Jake. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to Baseball America. So thanks very much for joining us, and we'll be with you again next week.